All right. Well, now we will turn to our passage that we will be studying this morning. Uh, We have been working through the book of Exodus. So if you would turn to Exodus chapter 25, and if you are using the Pew Bible, that will be on page 64. You can follow along in the Pew Bible in page 64. No, that is not a misprint. We will be looking at, Lord willing, seven chapters of Exodus this morning. My goal is to zoom out enough so we can see how these chapters fit and function in the move of this book as a whole. Uh, So we will not be reading it all. Those of you who are longtime Christians and Bible reading people will probably recognize these as those passages that each year test you. And test your endurance as you work through the Bible. Uh, But we'll begin by reading chapter 25, verse 1 through 9, to get us started. Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. Well, the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering, and you are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. And these are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me. And I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. God's people respond, thanks be to God. The late uh, pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul once noted, It's been said that the Methodists like to shout, fire! Whereas the Baptists like to shout, water! He and his Presbyterian ilk like to softly say, order, order. Hence, they have often been called the frozen chosen, or at least according to R.C. Sproul. Now, as for myself, I began ministry in a more charismatic tradition. And so I would look askance at my dear Baptist friends as rather frozen themselves. Uh, Maybe for those of you who've grown up in more frozen or, or more conserved or reserved styles of worship... You've mentioned or talked about those holy rollers down the street. Maybe you've heard someone speak of those chandelier-swinging Pentecostals. I've been to a couple of those services in my past. It's an experience. Uh, These jokes go deep. Uh, I recommend looking up uh, Christian comedian Tim Hawkins. He has some brilliant skits dealing with worship styles, different elements of modern worship services and styles. Uh, Particularly, look up Tim Hawkins on hand-raising. He gives you a taxonomy of hand-raising, starting with the hands in the pocket. I won't raise my hands, but I'll do this with the rhythm. See, there's always exceptions to general rules like these, but I would say, if you notice what I've been saying, even in jest, we tend to evaluate worship based off of personal preferences. Do we not? We typically tend to evaluate a church's worship based off of our backgrounds, our traditions, things we prefer. Uh, And often we rate them almost exclusively or primarily on music. Uh, It's either too loud or too quiet. It's too fast or too slow. It's too old or too new. 
It's too happy or it's too sad. It's got too much of a beat. It's got not enough of a beat. Have not we all made such weights, measurements regarding things in a worship service? And we just, we're, we're people with preferences, are we not? But what's fascinating as we come to this chapter or these seven chapters this morning is the last thing we will find in them is any question about what do people prefer. The last thing we will find is any speaking whatsoever about the people's opinion of how to worship a holy God. In fact, we are beginning a seven-chapter section this morning, the section which you know probably causes you to exercise that spiritual gift of speed reading in your annual Bible reading plans, does it not? But these seven chapters aren't even the totality of what the book of Exodus has to say about how God's people should worship. See, right now, we're going from chapter 25 to 31. Then, Lord willing, next week, there's a three-day, three-chapter uh, pause with dealing with the, the golden calf incident. But then the last six chapters are again about the tabernacle, which is to say, friends, 13 of the 40 chapters of this book are dedicated to the meticulous, even painful sometimes, exposition and detailing of how God's people are to worship him. One scholar explains why. See, because the Bible was understood as containing the very oracles of God, no word was considered superfluous. If Genesis needed only one chapter to describe the entire creation of the heavens and the earth, Exodus needed 13 chapters to describe the tabernacle where God's people gather to worship him. Why? Why is it that creation needed one chapter, but the tabernacle needed 13? Well, the shortest, simplest answer is this. Because after the fall, worshiping God is a life-threatening ordeal. Once sin has come in, once we are all those who are dead in Adam, as Romans 5 says we are, then we require all the details and all the warnings and all the prescriptions possible because we worship a holy God that we dare not approach flippantly or even by our own design. So the sermon this morning is called Worship East of Eden. That is, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, or rather chapter 3 through 11, shows what it looks like after the fall, and every chapter shows them further east, further east, further east of Eden and the presence of God. And the argument this morning from this large section is this, God's holiness requires a place and a priest for his people to worship. God's holiness requires a place and a priest for his people to worship. And we will look at these large section under the three points there, the place, the priest, and the people. Well, again, these chapters serve to paint a picture that is to help explain the fear-generating holiness of God and why it is that we approach carefully, cautiously, according to the rules, as it were. So as God tells Moses that the people are to donate to build the tabernacle, as we read there, and then it lists the items that will be necessary for Israel's worship, and at a pragmatic level, it's all the items needed to build the tabernacle and the priestly garments. Remember, the reason, though, Israel has any of these things to begin with is because the Lord made them favorable in the eyes of the Egyptians. 
and they gave Israel all this stuff. So in other words, the giving pictured here is this. The biblical picture is that everything belongs to God, and we are stewards who seek to give back to God that which is already His. Well, after the call for the people to donate the necessary items, now we're going to get this description of the tabernacle and its furniture. And I could show you the, the, the big chiasm that's take here. So there's furniture that goes from the Holy of Holies to the Holy Place. Then there's the tabernacle. Then it moves further out with the rest of the furniture. So the tabernacle itself is the centerpiece in chapters 25 through 7. And then in 28 and 29, there's another set where it talks about the high priest. And we don't have time to go all the details of the structuring, but there's a logic to his, to his craziness, as it were, structuring it this way. And the first thing he explains there, starting in chapter 5, after the call for the donation is the Ark of the Covenant. It's a little box that's covered with pure gold. Essentially, it's covered with the most precious metal that was available at that time. And so they cover this little box with gold, and we read earlier in Hebrews, Chip read for us, how that box would contain the commands and some other implements as well. But look at verses 17 through 22 there of chapter 25. And he's speaking of the cover of this Ark. It is make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherubim on the one end and the second cherubim on the other, and make the two cherubim one piece which cover with the cover at the two ends. And the cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. And the cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put it in the ark, the tablets of the covenant of the law that I will give you. And there, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So this golden top that's supposed to sit on top with pictures of two angels, wings spread out over the top, facing each other, is the, the cover. And the, the NIV translates it or interprets it for us, saying the atonement cover. Uh, other translations will say the mercy seat, because that is where God's people receive mercy. The blood is sprinkled, and they worship God there, but only on the Day of Atonement, as Leviticus later spells out. But that's where the blood would be sprinkled. The high priest, on the Day of Atonement, the only person who ever got to go into the presence of the Lord proper, as he dwelt there, was to walk in and sprinkle the blood of the atonement on the mercy seat the lid of this little golden box. The picture of the cherubs is that they're holding up the throne of God, or at least the footstool of God. The way Isaiah tells it is that God is seated on his heavenly throne, and his legs drape over, and the ark is like an ottoman resting his feet where his presence dwells with his people. And again, as Genesis 3 through 11 then moves further and further east, we learn that the ark is always to be set out facing the east. So God's people in the worship of the ark and later the temple are moving back westward. Whereas sin takes you east, further from God, the outer court is in the east. And then you move further west to the holy place. And only the high priest, and only on the day of atonement, and only with blood, does he go all the way west to the very presence of God. So worship for Israel, east of Eden then, is this visual reminder that sin had taken them far from God, and their journey was to move back toward him at the westernmost place. And it's a picture of worship that God regulates and structures in great detail. Now, why would this be important? Well, 400 years in Egypt with the polytheism and the worship of God, however they felt in different ways, 
No, they needed to be reminded that you can only approach a holy God the right way. So in the Holy of Holies is this ark, and then there's a thick veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the next room, the holy place. And then we go on to read in the next section about what that next piece of furniture is, and it's the table of the bread of presence, or in older translations, the show bread. Leviticus explains to us that on that little table, which is also covered in gold, is supposed to have 12 loaves or cakes of bread in two rows laid out representing the 12 tribes. And the reason behind this is because covenants were often cut and then a meal was celebrated. We saw this last week when Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders, after the Mosaic covenant was cut, they went up on the mountain and had a meal with God. So visually, the bread sitting on the table was a reminder that God's people have a relationship with him. Though he's sequestered behind the veil, he is still their provider, and they do have a relationship with him. And every week, the priests were to replace the bread and eat the old bread. Well, the third piece of furniture then is the lampstand, which is also in that holy place. And the lampstand is designed to be looking like a tree sometimes called the menorah, has the main branch and, and six branches off of the main branch. And it is meant to draw their attention even further west back to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. This lamp would have been the only thing they could see because the tabernacle has four coverings to it, four layers, so it would have been very dark. And this lampstand would have lit the holy place for them, a lit a little bit. And they would have been able to see that the cherubim, who are in the Holy of Holies, on the ark, are also woven into the ceiling. So in other words, this is the place where heaven meets earth. This is the place where God's people dwell with God, but only the priests go into there as we learn. Well, then after moving on these three pieces of furniture, chapter 26 gives us the ark construction proper. Like I said, it has four layers to it, the first woven with cherubim, and then there's different leathers. The last one says it's with dolphin skin or sea cow. It's a type of uh, fish animal, aquatic animal, that was readily available in the Red Sea. Okay, after the tabernacle, then finally in chapter 27, we've moved from the holy of holies to the holy place, and 27 moves out to the sacrificial courtyard. And that is where we get the picture of the bronze altar. So we've gone from gold to silver to bronze, going less holy as we go. But that bronze altar is where the sacrifice takes place, where blood is shed. And the picture is clear. Worship east of Eden means the only way westward is via blood. The only way to approach God is for someone to die. Whether the worshiper, because they charge in, or the worshiper because they worship God the way they want, as Nadab and Abihu will later do by offering strange fire, or via the death of the lamb in their place. So that's by placing the altar outside of the Holy of Holies. It shows us the only way back in is with blood. So one commentator puts it well. Clearly, one of the main thrusts of the tabernacle regulations is that everything must be done in a precise and correct way. The Lord had detailed plans for his worship, and no variation could be tolerated. He goes on to say this, There was nothing casual or whimsical about Israel's worship. The Lord insisted on being in charge of his worship, and the consequences of departure from this rule were dire. Multiple times in this section as you read, if you do it this way, you're going to die. They had to worship God according to the rule. And any sort of casual assumption that, well, whatever we do sincerely is good enough, he says, finds no place. There was a price to pay for unauthorized fire. 
Well, they opened with jokes about what we call worship styles. But go read carefully these three chapters and the ones that follow, and then the entire book of Leviticus, almost all of which is, is spelling out in painful detail how God is to be worshipped. And we should see, style was the furthest thing from Israel's mind. Oh, instead of frozen chosen, maybe it should be the awe-filled audience. It was an awesome thing to behold the holy God. As I said previously, this layout of the tabernacle with the holy of holies, the holy place, and the courtyard is a horizontal picture of the vertical Mount Sion that we saw in chapter or Mount uh, Mount Sinai. We saw in chapters twenty through twenty-four, where the top of the mountain is the holy place, and the middle is the slope is like the holy. And then the base is the outer courtyard. And if they touched even the courtyard, they would die. It's painfully regulated. So all this to say, practically, the corporate worship of God is precisely prescribed. It's carefully constructed. And the reason we should carry that over as New Covenant believers is because all of the original believers were Jews. The whole first generation of Christians were Jews, were they not? Acts 2? And so in their mind, what is the right way to worship God? Precisely, carefully, and with awe. So friends, I would just submit to you that that would permeate the church. You don't need a new Exodus or Leviticus because that would have been the only idea of ever approaching a holy God. And yes, in the New Testament, things will shift, and there'll be more information given, and some things might be not as tight, of course, but God's people approach God according to His Word. So friends, for any of you who may have wondered, everything we seek to do here in the morning services seeks to bend around the thing that is most explicitly prescribed in the New Testament. It's the teaching of the Word. Uh, So every service is trying to build around to tell the gospel story in support of the Word being preached that day. The readings, the songs, the prayers, they're all seeking to serve the thrust of that particular passage. And so that's why we do a call, as I said this morning, to recognize we have to be invited before a holy God. Oh, and praise God that we are invited. And so sometimes we respond to that call with a a prayer of praise or even a prayer of invocation, come Lord and work. Or sometimes, as we did this morning, with a corporate confession, we are receivers and responders. And of course, we respond in singing the praises of our God and King and Savior. John Curid puts it this way, God knows well the human heart. And that given freedom in worship, it would devise all sorts of aberrant practices. God protects his people by laying out in detail the means by which he will be worshipped and obeyed. But with that said, we can also go to the Psalms and read that there is great celebration. Is there not? Even, my my fellow Baptists, hang on to your seat. There's even dancing in the Bible. I know, hang on to your seat. It's going to be okay. Uh, which is to say that we have to acknowledge that God's people probably need to have different kinds of gatherings. Should we not? In the Psalms, those gatherings are not the corporate prescribed gatherings of God's people, but they're gatherings nonetheless. That's why there's dancing and celebration. Uh, So that means a local church needs to have more than one kind of gathering. Uh, Yes, on Sunday morning, we have the corporate gathering of the church, and so we are cautious and careful And we seek for that to be entirely shaped by the word. But there should be other gatherings. The whole of the Christian life is to be worshipped. So friends, as you gather in community groups, I pray and hope that that is a worshipful, enjoying time of fellowship with each other and praising God. 
And there should be other opportunities too. I hope that we'll get to a place where we have hymn sings or music nights. Take it out of the yard. Let the neighbors hear us worship God. There should be other gatherings as well. On Sunday morning, the corporate gathering, we're careful and cautious because as we see, God meticulously shapes his people's worship. And yet that's not the only time where God's people should gather and should worship him and sing and celebrate our God and King. So the first three chapters here, we see God is very careful to prescribe how he is to be approached, and there is much that we can apply as principles that come over to us. But the second section is actually just as important because the second section is the whole reason the first section exists. There's no point in having a tabernacle if you don't have the high priest who can actually go all the way into the tabernacle, which is why we come to our next section, the priest. Get to chapter 28. We'll look at the first five verses here. So God says to Moses, have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration, so he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. And they are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests, and have them use gold and blue, purple, scarlet yarn, and fine linen. And it goes on to explain in detail the, the ephod and the breastplate piece, which we'll come back to some of in a minute. But notice, uh, Aaron's garments are using the same material that was already donated for the tabernacle. So Aaron is, in a sense, kind of a walking tabernacle. He's having the, the story and picture of Israel woven into his very garments. We read that he's going to have golden bells, reminding us of the gold furniture. And he's going to have pomegranates on the bottom of his hem. Why pomegranates? Well, they were a common tree in that area. And it drives us back to the tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. So the priest himself is a visual of this whole person who needs to access God in his place. Uh, looks at some more uh, details, actually, and we'll see this spelled out in verses 9 through uh, 21. Verse 9 through 21 of chapter 28. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in the order of their birth. Six names on the one stone and the remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Make gold filigree settings and two braided chains of pure gold like rope and attach these chains to the settings. Fashion a breastpiece for making decisions, the work of skilled hands. Make it like the ephod of gold and blue, purple, scarlet yarn, finely twisted linen. It is to be square, a span long and a span wide, and folded double. Then mount four rows of precious stones on it. The first row shall be carnelian, chrysolite, and beryl. The second row, turquoise, lapis lazuli, emerald. The third row shall be jacinth, agate, and amethyst. The fourth row shall be topaz, onyx, and jasper. Mount them in gold filigree settings. There are to be 12 stones. Now, if you go back, those stones are some of the stones that are mentioned in the valley where Garden of Eden was. 
This man is wearing in a, as a walking garden, as it were, almost. But the point is, he is to literally bear the names of Israel. Down in verses 36 through 38, it says that Aaron, as the high priest, then has a, a, a tag on his turban, which says, holy to the Lord. So he, the holy man, is to bear the people in, and actually, you'll read there, he will bear the guilt of their punishment. So one commentator puts it well. In some symbolic sense, the high priest represents all of Israel, and he will incur responsibility for their sins and make atonement for their sins. But strikingly, the high priest is given no words to say. He's given no incantation. He's given no mantra or liturgical formula. So the high priest is to represent an ideal that he himself could never attain. The picture is this. The high priest offers atonement first for his sins, as you'll read about later, and he walks into the holy place to bring those, that atonement, but without a word. Because if he opened his mouth, he'd sin. <laughs> That's the picture. He's to be silent about his work as he atones for the people. Well, 28 explains what high priests wear, and 29 explains how they're to be consecrated, set apart with the sacrificial ritual that will later be the, the sin offering and the burnt offering. And again, it goes into great detail. Let's just look at one part, chapter 29, verses 10 through 21. So it says, Bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron and his son shall lay hands on its head, slaughter it in the Lord's presence and entrance to the tent of meeting. Take some of the bull's blood and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour out the rest at the base of the altar. Then take the fat on the entrails of the organs and the long lobe of the liver, both kidneys with the fat on them, and burn them on the altar. But burn the bull's flesh and its hide and its intestines outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head and slaughter it and take the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar." Cut the ram into pieces and wash its internal organs and legs, putting them with the head and other pieces, and burn the entire ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. Take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head and slaughter it, and take some of the blood and put it on the lobes of his right ears of Aaron and his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, on the big toes of their right feet, then splash against the sides of the altar." And it continues from there. The picture, three times they lay their hands on the animal's head and the animal dies for their sins. So that way they can approach the Lord and serve God's people, bearing their sin in, as Leviticus 16 will explain. First, they have to be cleansed before they can then represent the people in being cleansed. Why is with the blood on the right earlobe and the right thumb and the right big toe? Well, it's cleansing his hearing and obeying, all of his doing and his going. It's seeking to consecrate him and set him aside. So that way, what he hears and obeys, what he does with his hands and where he goes, he is a representative Israelite. This was how they ordained the priests. And historically, though, what has happened in Baptist churches is this morning what we did for Jeff by laying hands on him and praying is how we would ordain a pastor. I know I'm sure Tessa and you folks in the front row are probably glad we don't have to slaughter animals and splash blood everywhere. Uh, and thankfully, the reason that is so is because those Old Testament sacrifices were pointing beyond themselves. And see, what we see in the three times he had to transfer their sin to the animal, well, those animals were never enough. 
as we read earlier from Hebrews 9. And Hebrews 10 will go on. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities of them. No, those sacrifices served as an annual reminder for sins. And so Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says this, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Jesus, the high priest, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see, Aaron and his sons had to be involved in this bloody sacrifice because those sacrifices were never truly enough. They were only a stopgap. Whereas Jesus, the great high priest, offers the sacrifice that forever perfects those whom he is sanctifying and setting apart. So praise God, there is no need for bloody ordinations anymore. And yet, as we are ordaining Jeff, let us consider what is some of the elements of him being ordained or consecrated or set apart or called to service. So Jeff, part of your being called to serve this church as a pastor is a call to sacrifice. No, it's not a call to animal sacrifice. It's your whole life. Paul writes, in the view of God's mercy, you are to be a living sacrifice. Your whole life is to be an example of what it means not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed into the image of God. Unlike Aaron and the priests, you don't have special clothes, and yet you've been clothed with Christ. And your lifelong walk is to be an example to us of what it looks like to take off the old man and put on the new. So Jeff, the calling on you as one of our pastors is to pastor us both through your life and your lessons. It's to teach us and equip us to be the king priests that Jesus has made us to be. Show us how to do the work of the ministry so that you are not doing it all, but rather instructing us how we love and serve and care for and teach each other. So model prayerfulness and carefulness. Keep a close eye on your life and your doctrine. Help us to learn to be hospitable, how to love the good, how to be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And do this by holding firmly to the trustworthy message of the gospel. Encourage us with sound doctrine and challenge us when we stray from it. And most of all, remind us that all who repent and trust in Christ have been touched by his blood, not merely in our ears and thumbs and toes, but we have been covered and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Brother Pastor, this is the work you've been called to. We have a great high priest who intercedes for us. But feel the weight, and with Paul say, who is sufficient for such things? And yet with Paul, give the answer that he gives. Such is our confidence that we have in Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient ministers of the new covenant. In short, help us look to Christ, to see him, to gaze upon him and to walk out his life in ours. But if you notice, I started the application with Jeff by quoting a verse that is actually for every Christian. And it's not just pastors who are called to have their whole lives be living sacrifices. Every Christian is to be one whose entire life is a living sacrifice offered up to God. 
Every Christian is a king priest. We are all those who do the work of ministry. Yes, pastors help and teach. How? But friends, that is our calling. So it is our calling to be hospitable, to be humble, to be patient, to be forgiving, to be bearing one another's burdens and sins. But it's also our call to follow our leaders. As Hebrews 13, 17 says, submit to and obey your leaders, for they keep watch over your souls, and they'll give an account for the Lord, to the Lord. So members, how are you going about submitting to and honoring your leaders? That's God's call on all of our lives to do that. It's a matter of obedience to God, not, not just to us pastors. And maybe for the non-members of Bethany, notice the analogy. The priest has been ordained and consecrated to serve the people of Israel, a defined set group. And the same logic applies in the New Covenant. The only way for a Christian to truly obey the command to submit to your leaders is if they are actually your leaders, that you have committed and submitted to them in some level of formal membership. Now, that will look different in different parts of the world. And, and yes, of course, the formality and the, the process. Oh, sure. But Christian, it is a simple command that every one of us must submit to leaders. And if you haven't committed to them, then you cannot obey the command to submit to them. Your church membership is not my idea. It's God's. He's commanded us to love one another, to commit to loving one another and submitting to leaders. It's God's idea. I don't know if some hear me talk about this topic and feel I'm rather rigid on this, but friend, please hear it this way. My greatest desire for every Christian who walks in this room, whether they stay for a week or a year or 10 years of their life is this, that I would help hold your hand and take you one step closer to Jesus. And I worry for any Christian who says, I love Jesus, he's my king, but I will not obey that command. I believe that is hindering your walk with your savior. So if he is king, if he is Lord, then we long to joyfully continue to submit to him. Even in those areas that are intuitively uncomfortable for us. Well, friends, we have seen how the priestly role has changed from the old covenant to the new. We have a high priest, King Jesus, who has forever taken care of our access to God. In fact, he has made us kings and priests who serve his people. And so now we have to finally close by saying, how is it uh, that the place and people transition from the old covenant to the new? Let's look at chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. Exodus 31, 1 through 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skill to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Hasamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant, with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent. The table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and wash basins with its stand, 
and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. And the anointing oil, the holy fragrant incense for the holy place, they are to make them just as I commanded you. So, again, the building of the tabernacle required specially gifted people. In particular, two men are listed who are specially endowed with the Holy Spirit. It mentions others as well, but two by name. But there's a particular group who have a particular anointing to do this work. Now, there are a number of views of how does the relationship of God's people in the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant change or stay the same. They can get rather complicated. But here's just the simplest way that we have to acknowledge some level of shift. As I've said already... Only the high priest got to go all the way in to access God. And then only the rest of the priests got to go into the holy place. So in the old covenant, it was a representative system where the priest, the high priest, wore and represented the very names. He bore their names in the presence of God. He represented them. Uh, We saw this last week in the, the meal after the Mosaic covenant was cut. It was Moses... Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders who went up and represented the people in partaking of the meal. So, this representative nature of the Old Covenant is what is critical to understand how the Old Covenant functioned. And the relationship of how the Holy Spirit works in that seems to be connected to the fact that these special workers have been anointed by him. And that was different because God only dwelt in the Holy of Holies. However you work out the details, here's the important thing that we have to see. I've been arguing that God's holiness requires a place and a priest for his people to worship. And this brings us to the central difference between the covenants. Under the old covenant, God's presence was restricted to that holy of holies. Over and over again, we're going to hear warnings of, lest I break out. If God comes out from behind the veil, it is not a good thing for God's people So the Holy Spirit, then, is in some sense limited as God's presence behind that veil, which means that God dwelt among them in that mediated, representative way. And that makes sense, because after Adam in the fall, God's personal presence was with them in in the garden before the fall, right? He walked with them in the cool of the day. But then after the fall, Adam and Eve were removed east, and the cherubim guarded the way back in which is why the holy place has cherubim and why the holy of holies has the cherubs protecting the presence of God and people from him. So as the same we've seen here, every single morning there had to be a bloody sacrifice and every single evening there was a bloody sacrifice. Otherwise God's presence could not continue to even dwell behind the veil with these sinful people. So that's the central message of the Old Testament is that after the fall, Our whole life is to be one of worshiping God, but east of Eden, we can't approach God. We only have access to him through sacrifices and death and blood and priests. So do you see the dilemma? God's love is better than life. David, the psalmist, can sing, a day in your course is better than a thousand elsewhere. And yet, we cannot really enter his courts, particularly for Gentiles, because years later with the temple, the outer courts that Jews could go into, there was a sign posted in three languages, if a Gentile walks in here, you will die. So how do we approach this king? Well, Jesus, as we've seen, is the high priest who approached for us. He is the one who has ripped the veil from top to bottom in his death. Hebrews tells us the veil was torn. 
Matthew's gospel tells us the same. But the fuller part of the picture is this. We could not approach God, so God the Son incarnate approached us. Which is why John 1.14 explains Jesus' incarnation as his tabernacling amongst us. But Jesus is not only the true fulfillment of the tabernacle. The very next chapter, he says he's the true temple. That he is the temple. And when his body is broken down and killed, he will raise it up again three days later, which is exactly what we see. See, never again will God limit his access to a building. That is what has changed in the Old Covenant to the New. Now, you don't need to turn there because I'll read it, but Ephesians 2, 14 through 18, explains this. Paul unpacks this change across the covenant. So Ephesians 2, 14, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace. Peace, because we can now access God freely through him. And he has made the two groups, that is Jews and Gentiles, one He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting, aside, setting it aside in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in the one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I've said throughout the study of, of Exodus that Israel is being pictured as a corporate Adam But Jesus is the true, final, corporate Adam. He's taking the two and putting them into one new humanity in himself. And then he continues, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, in whom the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The Jesus is pictured as the foundation, and the members of his body are those stones mortared to him and each other, building up his new temple. So practically speaking, whereas God told Moses, you have to have a sanctuary for him, a sacred place, there are no more sanctuaries. This is just a room. The sanctuary is the people. I walk into this room in the week when it's cold and dark. It's a sad room. When we are here worshiping God, he inhabits the praises of his people. It is a sanctuary then because we are the sanctuary. We are the holy temple. We are the holy ones who worship God. See, friends, in him we are seated in the heavenly places. Now by faith, the Holy Spirit is making us a true temple, the final temple where God dwells. And one day our faith will give way to sight. Then in the new heavens and new earth, where we read in Revelation 21 and 22, there is no temple for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Because we're back to Eden unmediated access to God. So see now, friends, our earthly tabernacles, our earthly individual tents, which are also temples of the Holy Spirit, they're wearing out. We are impinged upon by physical sufferings, by mental and emotional and spiritual sufferings. Our bodies are perishable, but one day they will be raised imperishable. You see, friends, in that place, 
There'll be no need for a lampstand to give light to a dark room because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the very sun itself and the tree of life will return and its leaves will be for the healing of the nations so that never again will there be tears, will there be sorrow or sickness or suffering. And friends, on that day, the meal is changed from 12 little cakes that only the priests eat to the great feast. Oh, in a moment, we're going to celebrate, and rightly so, but with a tiny cup and cracker. It's meant to leave you unsatisfied. It's meant to remind you of what he did, of his body broken and his blood poured out. But it's also meant to point ahead to a true feast that we will be filled and satisfied on in the kingdom to come. So friends, this is why we actually can treasure these strange, detailed instructions about tabernacles and priests and sacrifices. Because they speak to us about salvation in Christ. About the fact that now no longer is the Holy Spirit sequestered, but he unites us. God's holiness requires a place and a priest for his people to worship. And so we praise him who is our priest We praise him who has made us the people, the very place where he is worshipped because of what Jesus has done. So may we be a people who pray and long for others to be joined and built into this new growing temple, both here at Bethany and other churches and places around the world. See, the reason God delivered the people all the way back in Exodus, as we've said, is the same reason he delivers people today, that the glory and power of his name might be proclaimed among the nations. So friends, this is our calling, to so worship God rightly or in truth and through and by his Holy Spirit's work in us, uniting us to Christ, that the nations will behold and come and join and be added in as another brick in the wall of God's sanctuary. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how we thank you. We thank you for... The fact that we no longer have to come to a place. We come to a person, Christ. And and Christ is the one who is actually making us a new humanity. A new person in himself. Because the Spirit is uniting us and has raised us and seated us with him. And he inhabits the praises of your people so that we can be a light to the nations. So Lord, we thank you for the detailed instructions for a tabernacle in the Old Testament, that we will never enter into because our future is to be with you in unmediated glory. How we long for that day. We thank you that you sustain us until that day. And we pray all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.